Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, um, I'm Nate. I'm one of the pastors here at Harvest, and uh, <laughs> and for me, it is always a an absolute joy to open up the Word of God with you on Sunday mornings. Um, Pastor Doug is over at Harvest uh, Peoria this morning. He's preaching two times this morning and another time tonight. So if you would, be praying for him. And then also be praying for Harvest Peoria and their pastor, um, Tim Harkness, as he's still recovering from surgery this week that he had, that, had last week. So glad that Pastor Doug gets to go over there and be with them uh, today. Well, First Samuel... 1 Samuel chapter 4 is where we were uh, last week. Um, Pastor Doug opened up to that passage with us, and we talked about the defeat and the decision and the devastation that was there in that chapter. Um, uh, Doug listed kind of six things that were devastating, really, at the end of this chapter. There's, there's 30,000 soldiers that are dead. There's three priests dead uh, the ark of God is captured, and remember the ark was a physical representation of God's promises to and presence with his people. There was one daughter-in-law dead, there was one baby named Ichabod, but in all of this the Lord is fulfilling his promises, he's revealing himself, and he's preparing a work. But there at the end of chapter four you see that the glory has departed. Or in other words, where is the glory? We're just going to jump straight from there into chapter 5. Father, if you would be with me this morning, calm my heart and help me to speak clearly from your word. Lord, may we see you in a right way in this passage and may we leave here worshiping you and rejoicing at what you have done in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Here we go. And when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the ark of God and they brought it into the house of Dagon and they set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. And when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. And only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. All right, what's happening here in these first verses? Well, the ark has been captured, right? The Philistines have captured the ark. They return it um, to their land and they bring it specifically to their main Philistine city, the city of Ashdod. And then they take the ark and they put it in the temple of Dagon. Who was Dagon? Dagon was the national deity, the principal deity, the, the national god of the Philistines. Uh, some think that he was half fish, half man. We don't know for sure. 
We know that he was a fertility and harvest God for them, and they bring the Ark of God into Dagon's temple. Why? Well, the main reason they do it is to represent Dagon's superiority over Yahweh as represented in this Ark. That's going to get reversed. Um, they also brought um, the Ark of God into the temple because they were opportunistic worshipers. Okay, so they would bring in the trophy gods that their god had victory over and they would bring it into their temple and they'd have a nice collection of gods to kind of pull out whenever they needed it. And they would say, hmm, what's this god known for? I think we'll bring him out today to see if he'll help us. So they're opportunistic worshipers. Surely the ark of God will be able to benefit us in some way. Now there's humor in this at first, isn't there? I mean, they're like, hey, we, we've conquered Israel, and therefore our God has been victorious over their God, Yahweh, as represented by this ark. Woohoo! And then the next morning, wham! Face down, this posture of adoration. Okay, maybe some wind came through last night, blew Dagon over. All right, let's prop him back up, which, by the way, what kind of God needs propped up by his people? <laughs> All right, let's prop him back up, and I actually kind of picture them a little bit, just kind of giving him a pep talk. Like, that's okay, bud. Brush the dust off. Like, you got it, man. Like, tonight, stand up. Stay standing. Like, you're the man. Like, you triumphed over Yahweh, Right? Stand up tonight, the next morning, wham, and this time what? No head, no hands, whether it was wood or stone or whatever it was, like head and hands chopped off. Uh, By the way, in Old Testament time, uh, the severing of the head and the hands was symbolic of wisdom and sovereign control and power. The armies used to do it to their defeated enemies. It was to show their power over them, and it was meant to humiliate and humble them and strike fear in the hearts of the survivors that they hoped would yield to the conquerors. And this is what Yahweh does to Dagon. So there's humor in this, right? I mean, come on. The idol is tipped over. Its head is gone, and its hands are gone. Like, you'd think that would, like, tell them something? Uh, But there's also in this passage um, some sadness in this too, isn't there? I mean, after all this happened, like what did the Philistines do? Like, do they forsake Dagon? Fall on their faces before the Lord and worship him? No. In fact, look at verse five. It says, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house, so there's still all the worship going on there, Do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So what do they do? Do they forsake Dagon? No. They keep worshiping him. They just don't step on the threshold now. That's sad, isn't it? Uh, We like taking our kids from now and again to to the Children's Museum. That's a fun thing to do as a family. And a couple of years ago, we were there and uh, they had an exhibit, I think it was called The Religions of the World. 
Um, and we were like, you know what, I think this could be good. Take the kids through, walk through, see. This is a great learning opportunity, great time for us to pray, help them to learn some of these things. And we started walking through, and really, this whole room was filled with all the major religions of the world and, and a lot of the minor religions of the world. But basically, it was just this shrine full of idol after idol after idol that's worshipped around the world today, today, and not in that, not in very distant places either. And I remember we stopped at this one particular um, Hindu god, little g god, and, uh, and the kids, ironically enough, were laughing at it. Um, but it was just grotesque. And there, there, there were offerings there that people had left, like food and flowers and different things. Later on, when I researched it, I found out it's because this, this idol, this particular idol is known to especially enjoy sweets. It's like a chocolate god, you know. Um, and, and we were standing there, and I was trying to explain to the kids and some different things, and it, it just floored me. I ended up having to walk out because the Lord struck me with the fact that I'm like, there are millions of people around the world that worship this as God. And it's just, it's sad. Um, and it's sad for the, for the Philistines here. I'm sad for them in this passage. Um, but here also, something I think we, we look over a lot is the spiritual warfare side of this narrative too. And there's humor and sadness kind of in the spiritual warfare side of this. Um, see, although we know this is a false idol, this is, this is a false god and nothing more, it's important for us to remember the, the satanic work that happens behind the scenes of this worship to false gods. Um, Satan is always at work. Satan, Satan loves it when people bow down to a hunk of wood. And Satan and his demons are always luring and enticing people into worship of anything but the God of the universe. Imagine, actually, imagine the rejoicing of Satan and his host over this, right? Imagine that. It, it, we don't see it here, but it, imagine it behind the scenes. I mean, this looked like victory, right? Yahweh was conquered. The ark is, is, is captured. The symbol of Yahweh's presence sits in submission to, to Dagon, right? Satan would have been like, this is a, is a victory. Now, this, this isn't in the text here, but as I was kind of sitting and praying through this passage, I, uh, I kind of imagined what was happening here behind the scenes in the in the spiritual realm. I, I imagine behind the scenes uh, the demons and Satan going, okay, there's been a victory. The ark is captured. It's our job tonight to make sure Dagon stands. And here's this host of demons pushing against this idol. I'm like, no matter what happens tonight, guys, Dagon stands. Then the next day, it's like, okay, that didn't go so well. We're going to try again. You know, like a host of demons, army of demons. Dagon, we will protect you. You will stand. This is 
victory for us and our host. And wham, head and hands. I mean, this whole thing would have looked like a defeat for Yahweh, but is what it actually turned into was a victory. Does it sound like anything else? <laughs> Maybe the cross and the empty tomb? Imagine, imagine Satan. Jesus is dead. He's in the tomb. Right? Seal that thing up. Put some, put some soldiers in front of that. We have one job tonight. He doesn't leave here. He won't leave. I won't let him. Wham! Empty tomb, risen savior, victory, crushed head. Ha! So I sat there kind of thinking through, the, thinking through this and praying through it, and I was kind of chuckling at the visible and invisible drama that was unfolding here in this passage. And, uh, and I was like kidding me like you're you worship and try to hold up this wood thing with a face on it an idol and then the lord said uh, so do you how many idols Seen and unseen. How many idols of my heart do I strain against on a daily basis trying to keep upright in the presence of a holy God? How many idols in our lives do we strain against daily trying to hold up somehow in the presence of a holy God. We, we want our idols and we want God too, don't we? Like, let's put him in the room with all the, with all the other things that I want to worship, right? And then we'll pull them out when we can use them. And usually God comes out on Sundays. And we push against and we strain against our lust and our dreams and our desire for man's approval and my safety and security and money and my way. I want my way. And we worship images on a screen and jobs and people. Idols. How often, too, we want the Lord to first do something for us and then we'll worship him. We want the Lord to cure us and destroy our sins and our struggles and fix me and give me and I want and then, then I'll submit. Then I'll love you. Then I'll bow. Then I'll worship you, Lord. Wrong order. Humble yourself. Submit. Yield. Bow before him. You know, it's harder to keep idols upright when we're already on our knees. <laughs> it's really hard to keep idols in our life 
upright in the presence of a holy God when we're already on our face before him. This passage is awesome. It proclaims Yahweh is holy. He is not one of many gods. He is God. He is not better than other gods, like there's some list of gods and he's just at the top of that list. He's holy. He's set apart. Yahweh is unique, unable to be defined other than infinite in his value and his moral perfections. He is the one true holy God. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which if you don't remember anything else from today, write down The Knowledge of the Holy, leave here, order it, sit down with that book and your Bible and worship. Okay? A.W. Tozer writes this in The Knowledge of the Holy. Um, God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The the natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. He is holy. Isaiah chapter 40. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. And see who created these. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 43, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Isaiah 45, there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. First Samuel 2.2 2. Hannah, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. He is holy. There's none of this like, well, well, we, we call our God by a different name, but we all worship the same God. No. There's one true God revealed in Jesus Christ, and yours is not him. There's, there's none of this, well, I, I don't believe in him, and so therefore, he doesn't exist, or, or I don't think God is, or I can't believe in a God that blank as if that changes the fact that he is God. As if what you or I should think determines who he is. It doesn't matter what you think. Love you. (laughs) But it doesn't matter what you, what I, what we think. He is who he is. He is who he declares himself to be in an exodus. He says, I am who I am. Your beliefs do not dictate 
who God is. He alone is God and we will bend our knee to him and we will bend our knee to his will. Do you get this? Dagon got the drift. He's on his face. Let's keep going. Look, Look at verse six. And the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. The hand of the Lord, it's just a phrase saying basically Yahweh is in action here. Like there's affliction from the Lord. This is fascinating because the hand of the Lord is at work where are the hands of Dagon. <clears throat> the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. Some of your translations may um, tell what those tumors are. I'm not gonna go into it, but it's, they're bad. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. Verse 8, so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? Which is fascinating that they're calling it the ark of the God. Excuse me. Of Israel, back in chapter 4, they said, A God is in our midst. They're starting to get it. The God of Israel. They answered, let the ark of of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath, because I'm sure that will work. That will change something. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there, and after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that the tumors broke out on them. Verse 10, so they sent the ark of God to Ekron. There we go, let's try that. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. And they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a a deathly panic throughout the whole city and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So in other words, it was desperate and loud. Chapter six. And the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, seven months this has happened. And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with, what shall we send it to its place? And they said, well, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means re- return him a guilt offering, and then, then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. Verse four, and they said, what is the guilt offering that we should return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice. That's interesting. (laughs) Golden tumors and mice. Some think maybe the mice were spreading disease. Maybe the mice looked like the tumors. Don't know. It's odd either way. Five golden tumors and five golden mice according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your Tumors, more images, and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand 
from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? This is interesting. There's lots of similarities here, by the way, in this passage, in this narrative, to the Exodus narrative. Tonight, go back. Look at the Exodus narrative. Look at this. It's interesting. Um, but they had heard what the Lord had done in Egypt. And yet what? Do they humble themselves and now serve <laughs> the God of Israel? No. No, they don't. They still refuse to submit. Verse 7. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart. But take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in the box at its side, the figures of gold. Why not send along the tumors which you are returning to them as a guilt offering and then send it off and let it go its way and watch. And if it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beshemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened by coincidence. What's happening here? Basically, they are taking away every possibility that the cows will get there. All right? These cows have never been yoked. They don't know what that's like. They've never felt that before. They're not going to know what to do as far as pulling. They have calves. And so by taking the calves away, they're going to do everything they can to get back to these calves. And they're not going to go where they're supposed to go. Basically, these cows should be wandering around in circles and bumping into each other. Is that what happens? Verse 10. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart, and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart, and the box with the golden mice, and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beshemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. Ten miles they go, mooing all the way crying out for their calves. And they would have returned to them if it hadn't been for divine intervention here. <laughs> I, I love this. Okay, some more fun with this passage. Uh, the, the mooing of these cows was kind of like this animal chorus, like singing glory to God for 10 slow miles. Right? It was like, is that the sound the cow makes? Yahweh is Lord. He is holy. He is above all. Mooing, singing out the praises of God for 10 miles. This is no coincidence. No coincidence. I also find this fascinating. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? The contrast here between... Uh, Dagon being propped back up by his people. And Yahweh finding the ark's way home. See, uh, the Lord doesn't need us, does he? He doesn't need a relationship with us. We need to, we have to ban that from our thinking. But he 
graciously invites us into relationship with him. And even when we fail, like Israel here, he graciously and mercifully pursues us. Sometimes with cows. The ark has returned. No, wait. God has returned it to Israel. He has no need of rescue. He's the rescuer. Verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. Well, that's cool. So even in light of everything they've done in disobeying, even in light of the ark of God being captured, even in light of everything looking like defeat, God behind the scenes has been blessing them. And there's harvest in their fields. And they were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. And the ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. And a great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites, this was a Levite city, and the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it and which were the golden figures, wonder how that conversation went, and, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Verse 17, these are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone besides which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Verse 19. And then he struck Yahweh struck some of the men of Beshmesh. Why? Because they looked upon, actually it's into the ark of the Lord and he struck 70 of them. Are you kidding me? Like, here they go again. They knew they weren't supposed to look into the ark upon the contents of the ark. I mean, this was a Levitical city. They knew this and yet they did. And he strikes 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Verse 20. And the men of Beshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim and said, uh, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Chapter 7, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came, and they took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from the day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Look back at verse 20 in chapter 6 there. This is the central theme of this whole narrative. 
Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That's a great statement, isn't it? They're getting it. They've, they've caught a glimpse of the holiness of God here. And when we, when we get a glimpse of his holiness, it changes everything. When, when we get a glimpse of God's holiness, we begin to see him rightly and we begin to see ourselves rightly in his holy presence. And they seem to be getting that. But then, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go away from us? Send the ark away. No, no. Worse. Look what it says. To whom shall he send him away? They're like, who can stand in his holy presence? Send him away. They're they're treating God just like the Philistines did. And they're still missing it. They've forgotten his promise in his holiness to dwell among them, and to be their God. Matthew Henry wrote this. He said, Hard, carnal hearts, when they smart under the judgments of God, would rather, if it were possible, put him far away from them than enter into covenant and communion with them and make him their friend. Send it away. He's holy. We aren't. He'll consume us. Send him away. Sending sending him away wasn't the answer, was it? Sending the ark away wasn't the answer. A better response would have been on our faces before him. Forgive us, Lord. We repent How can we make peace with you? How can we be reconciled to you? How can we be in relationship with you? A holy God. That should have been the response. Two main things that we are going to get out of this passage this morning. Ready? Just two. You got a nice blank note page there to write two things. One, God is holy. And there is none like him. He is other than, set apart, superior to, unfathomable in his holiness. And in light of his holiness, and in light of our sinfulness in his presence, how do we know this holy God? Jesus. God reveals himself in and through Jesus Christ. How do we know a holy God? Jesus. Jesus is God's holiness made both visible and accessible. Colossians chapter one says this. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We are reconciled with a holy God through Jesus Christ. God has reconciled us to himself and by grace, through faith, we lay hold of him. He is the greatest treasure. There's nothing more valuable than him. There's nothing more valuable than relationship with him. I have to turn there real quick. I do about every other sermon I preach just because I really love this verse. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 says this. It says, the kingdom of heaven, the reign of King Jesus is like like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. I love thinking about this parable. Like here he is, and he comes to purchase this field, and he's like, I wanna buy that field over there. Can you imagine, he's like, okay, where's your checking account? It's right here. (laughs) Here, Here's everything in my checking account. What about your savings? It's there too. What about your house? It's there. It's all there, that's everything I have. This field is not some stepping stone investment to something down the road. This is everything I have for the greatest treasure of all, and it's located over there. All my stuff, all my rights, all my health, you can have it all. I want the treasure. It's not about what God will get for me. It's not about my value. It's about his value. I want him not as a means to an end like we're seeing here in this passage. I don't want him as a means to an end. I want him as the end. It's about getting God. He is the greatest treasure. Relationship with him. We get a glimpse of his holiness. Oh, he's holy. And when we do, it helps us to see rightly who he truly is. And it helps us to see rightly who we truly are. Unworthy, unholy sinners who cannot be in his presence. But then, how do we have relationship with him? How do we get access to, how do we do life with a holy God? Through Jesus. 